in the absence of the body of Christ mobilizing, there is not a site for someone outside of being able to afford a membership to a gym to have the right to hygiene and the dignity to shower and to be clean like the rest of us. And in Charleston County, there's an estimated 2,700 people on the streets right now experiencing homelessness. And then in Dorchester and Berkeley County, there's an estimated 800 and 900 people experiencing homelessness right now. A huge stigma is that, oh, if you provide a service for someone experiencing homelessness, then you're gonna be stuck with them. And man, we want that. That's a huge victory for us. To every single person who has chosen to step into stewardship, you are being a part in changing the lives of people right here in your community. And the impact is truly a legacy impact. Anyone who joins us, they're not our client and they're not our guest, they're our neighbors. You did that, Seacoast. You guys did that. Way to go. Through your generosity, you continue to make an impact in the communities where we have a presence, so we're grateful for that. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online or maybe from one of our campuses today. I know that Asheville is with us, and we all know that you have the prettiest leaves. You can stop posting the pictures on social. We're all jealous. We're glad you're with us. My name is Adam. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, hopefully I will soon. And I want to start this morning with a question. How many of you know that we can benefit from listening to people who have been there before? Anybody know that? Yeah. We can benefit from people who can look back on their experience, good or bad, and share with us what they've learned. Well, for me, a few years into my marriage, I realized I had a problem. Now, some of you are thinking, go no further. Amen, brother. That's not what I'm talking about today. My problem was that I would lose my wedding band. And I, I don't mean that I would misplace it. I mean that I would lose it permanently. It would just get pulled off my finger when I was surfing. I lost two wedding bands that way. And so if you're ever, you find yourself at the beach and you see those guys with the metal detectors and you wonder, what do they find? They find my wedding bands. You're welcome. Dana was always very gracious about this, but I was frustrated. I knew something had to change. So I became an early adopter of the squishy wedding band. In fact, I'm a little bummed I didn't invent the darn thing. But it, it made me think seriously about getting one tattooed on my finger. That would solve my problem, right? And I mentioned this to my sister-in-law, who at that time had recently been through a divorce. And she thought that seemed kind of drastic. She was like, you know, what if it doesn't work out? Like, what are you going to do? There won't be a ring to give back. Are you just going to give her your finger? And then she stopped herself and said, you know what? Never mind. I just went through a divorce. They usually end with someone getting the finger. <laughs> it's awkward laughter. I can feel it. I know. Now, I share that with you for two very specific reasons today. One, to point out that my sister-in-law is a pretty wise woman. But two, to highlight the value of learning from people who have been there before us. For the last few weeks, we've been in a series called The Word at Work, where we're looking at the value of work and the impact that it can have in our lives. And today we're going to look at a passage where the writer was looking back at his work and what it taught him about himself and about God. But that's not all we're doing today, because there's a verse in the book of Matthew towards the end of his gospel that says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And across all of our campuses, this weekend is baptism weekend. There's going to be a bunch of people getting baptized. We hope you'll stick around and join the celebration. It's going to be amazing. We do this. This guy's excited. We do this for two reasons. One, because God told us to. He wants us to make it easy for people to get baptized because two, baptism is your chance to publicly declare your faith. You see, baptism is kind of like the wedding band of Christianity. A wedding band doesn't make you married, just like baptism doesn't save you. But a wedding band does serve as an important symbol that you are committed to someone. And baptism serves that same purpose. It serves the purpose of saying that we are publicly com- that we of saying publicly that we are committed to God. And so if you're prepared to do that today, if you want to do that, some of you came, you, you've signed up, you're ready to do it. And some of you are thinking, hey, I've never done that. I want to do it. If you want to do that today, we'll give you more direction on, on what that looks like at the end of our service. Well, we've got towels, we've got shirts, we've got shorts, we've probably got some hair dryers around this place. But you just go out. I'll give you more direction on what that looks like. You can go out after the service and they'll take care of you. But that's not the only thing we're doing this weekend. The other thing is this. And I'll I'll be honest with you. This one makes me a little less comfortable. I'm I'm a bit uncomfortable to even talk about this. So I'm going to need some grace here. But some of you may know that as leaders, pastors are going to be held to a different kind of standard. And I I think that's a good thing. I think that should be so. But James 3.1 says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, we're all going to be justified by the work of Jesus on the cross. That's not what James is talking about. But he does make it clear here that pastors are going to be held to another kind of standard according to what we teach. And so when we read verses like the one in Matthew 28, where it says, make disciples and baptize people. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. I have to take the everything part pretty seriously. And so that means that I've got to talk about the importance of things like baptism. It also means that I've got to talk about the importance of things like generosity. And that's where the air left the room right there. (laughs) Now, I'll say this. I want to I want to just if you're new to Seacoast, you should know this. Like you, you might be thinking, oh, I bet a church like this just talks about money all the time. Not true. In fact, according to the old, the New Testament, as often as Jesus talked about it, we don't do it enough. That's on us. We need to change that. But you should know that we do this about once a year and you just happen to show up this weekend. So it's kind of on you. Just saying. But here's what I want to say about generosity in the same way that baptism is an outward declaration of our commitment to God, of an inward change. So generosity is an outward demonstration of an inward change in our lives to think that we could move from being people who are self-centered and self-absorbed to be people who are generous, even to the point of sacrifice. That's a testimony of, of the power of God in our lives. No other way to describe that. And so we're calling this weekend commitment weekend. And here's what this means. For the last few weeks, you've been hearing us talk about legacy. And this weekend is the opportunity to financially commit to where God is leading this church over the next two to five years. 
There are campuses that are exceeding capacity and they need more room. Again, that's on you. You keep showing up. We're just trying to keep up. There are mission opportunities for us to bring the word of God to people who have literally never heard it before. We have the chance to translate the Bible into a language that 47 million people speak. They don't have one yet. And there are students and children here at our campuses who need us to step up and say, you know what? We're going to make sure this place is here long after we're gone so that you and your children can grow in your faith and make a difference. And so we've been giving you these last few weeks to pray about how you might get involved, how you might invest in those opportunities. And today we're just asking you to take the next step to do whatever God has told you to do. This is not a high pressured sales pitch. Just do what God has told you to do. Commit to whatever he wants to do through you. And I want to say this. None of you are obligated to do anything. None of you. The vision that God has given us, we believe he's going to get it done with or without us. I don't even think he really needs us to do it. This is simply an invitation. Do you want to be part of it? Because remember, generosity is a choice, but it's also a demonstration of what's going on inside of us. So I'll give you more information on the end at the end of our service on what that looks like. All right. Hey, everyone uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. So I'm moving on. All right. Like I said, for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called the word at work. And today we're going to look at David's life, his experience as he looked back at his work and the impact that it made in his life. And this is a familiar passage. You'll know it. But I promise you there are some things here that will be new for you today. Okay. So let's get into it. Psalm 23 verses one through six. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we pray that you would sow your word deep into our hearts and minds, that it might affect everything about us, that we might step into the freedom your son died to bring us. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, there are two pictures here in Psalm 23. The first is that of a shepherd and his sheep, and the second is that of a banquet and a host. And both of them show us a lot about ourselves and a lot about God. We can see how God as our shepherd devotes himself to us, even to the point that he would put his own life on the line to protect his sheep. We also learn that we can be a lot like sheep. We're often stubborn. We're quick to wander. We consume constantly. Some people have even used these texts in the Old Testament to say that sheep are dumb animals comparing them to us. But I believe that's a mistake because that's almost never what the text is trying to convey. It's not that the sheep are dumb. It's that they're dependent and they so often fail to realize it. Now, some believe that David wrote this psalm as a young man when he was actually herding the sheep. But most of the commentaries now agree that this had to be written at a much older age. There's just too much insight, too much wisdom for this to have written by a young David. 
So it's more likely that David wrote this psalm as an older man looking back on all that he had learned from his time in the pasture. Which is what makes this a perfect passage for our series, because we get the benefit of seeing what David learned about himself and about God by looking back at his work. So we're going to approach this a little differently today. We're going to look at each verse and what David was trying to show us. And then we're going to finish by identifying five things that David learned about by his, from his work as a shepherd and how that relates to us. Okay, first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. All right, right out of the gate, David reveals here that he's learned some things from his time as a shepherd, some things that would help him better understand the nature of God. Just as David worked hard every day to protect and provide for the sheep, he knew that God had done the very same for him. He could see how God had provided him. He could see how God had protected him when he faced a giant. He could see how God had protected him when his boss, King Saul, was trying to kill him. And some of you might feel like, I can relate to David. Like, my life's pretty hard, too. In your work, you may feel like you've made big sacrifices. You may even feel like you face giant-sized obstacles or that the people who should have been supporting you the most have been the ones who are opposing you. And if that's true, then this is a great psalm for you. You're going to be encouraged today. And then David says something that our, our Western minds can barely comprehend. He says, I lack nothing. Some of your versions say, I shall not want. That's the more literal translation. And this can be hard for us to get our minds around because the idea of not lacking anything, not wanting something, is almost inconceivable to us because we always want things. But we make the mistake of believing that the things we want in this life can actually satisfy the deep thirst in our souls. I remember when Emma was about four Dana picked her up from school one day, and from the back seat, she asked a question. She said, Mama, why aren't we rich? And Dana laughed, and she said, Baby girl, we are rich. We're rich in love. Emma thought about that for a second. She kind of knew she'd been tricked. She said, Yeah, but I want to be rich in both. <laughs> the reality is we all want things. Sometimes we want a lot of things. That's not necessarily bad, but if we find that we are constantly consuming the way that sheep are constantly consuming, then we've allowed our wants to take control of us. And ironically, that's when we begin to feel the most empty. So how do you deal with that? How do you address that in your life? Well, I'll answer the question with a picture. Okay. Think about the animals of the Sahara. You know, the ones that people pay lots of money to go see on safari, like the elephants and giraffes and lions and zebras, all of them from the smallest to the largest, the, the least powerful to the most powerful. They must all drink from the stream to survive. And before they can drink from the stream, they have to do the same thing. They must first bow. This is an important picture for you and me. Because in this regard, what's true for them is true for us. If we want to satisfy the deep thirsts in our souls, then we must first bow to the one who is the shepherd of our souls. If we want to satisfy the deepest thirsts within us, then we must bow to the one who made us. 
All right, next verse. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, what do sheep usually do in green pastures? They eat, right? That's like a buffet to a sheep. So what does it mean if they're lying down in the green pasture? It means they're full or they're sick or dying. But I think David meant to communicate here that they're full. This is where David begins to show us a picture of God as our provider and not just the God who can provide the God who wants to provide the sheep are presented with such an excess here that it, it, it's, it's greater than their ability to consume it, which is a big deal for sheep because that's what they did all day long. And you might be thinking, I, I see where you're going here. I, I see what you're about to do, but that has not been true in my life. I have not had this outpouring of blessing that was so great that I've not been able to consume it, not financial or otherwise. And let me point out why that might be true for so many of us. The next three words in the psalm, the ones that follow this verse are he leads me. He leads me. And David wanted us to understand who was leading him. Who had the final authority in his life? Because this was not always true for David. David had made some pretty big mistakes in his life and learned the hard way that his life in God's hands was better off than his life in his own hands. And so if you're wondering, if you're wondering why you aren't experiencing the blessing of God in your life, then it might be time to ask yourself this question. Who's leading you? Who's leading you? Is it you? Or is it the God who made you? Let me reframe it for you in a way that might make it just a bit more practical. Are we allowing God to lead us in our work? Would your coworkers say that about you? Are we allowing God to lead us in our relationships? Would your spouses say that about you? Would your friends or your parents or your children say that about you? Are we allowing God to lead us in our sexuality? Would your search history say that about you? It's weirdly quiet in here. Are we allowing God to lead us in our finances? Would your transaction history say that about you? And just to let you know that you're not alone here. I'll share with you a personal story about how God dealt with me on a very specific issue. It was an area of my life where I was not allowing God to lead. But when I surrendered it to him, everything seemed to change. When Dana and I first got married, we, we were in ministry and we were making very little money. And the thought of tithing, giving 10% of our income sounded great. Like I knew it was biblical. But the reality of tithing seemed impossible. And so I would say for a few years that our generosity, it looked a bit more like tipping than it did tithing. We just kind of threw a little bit here and there when we could. And so the financial pressure for us was pretty constant. It was always a challenge. And not long into our marriage, we decided, we both kind of realized like, all right, we're not letting God lead in this area of our lives. To be fair, my wife helped me realize something that I was resisting because I was afraid. And so we committed to surrendering our finances to him and we began tithing. And it was hard. <laughs> I'd love to tell you it was easy. It wasn't easy. It was hard. 
but almost immediately the financial stress improved. It wasn't that we were making more money all of a sudden. It was that the money we were making somehow, somehow seemed to go further in God's hands than it did in ours. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is this. Blessing almost always follows obedience. Blessing almost always follows obedience. And if we want the blessing that our shepherd has for us, then we may need to take a closer look at who is leading us. All right, next verse. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Now here we see David use a word that's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. The word refresh here is the Hebrew word shub, and it means to return or to come back. And this brings something important into focus for us. I want you to hear it. Because the renewing and restoring of our souls begins with returning to God. The renewing and restoring of our souls begins with returning to God. Ask anyone who has experienced the peace of God in their lives, and they will tell you there was an absence of it before they returned to him, before they surrendered to him. If we want to be renewed, if we want to be restored, if we want to be healed, then we will have to continually return to the God who is our good shepherd. Next verse. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Now, to really understand this verse, you kind of have to look at the last four words for his name's sake because they reveal the why. It means that in order to be consistent with his character, in order to be consistent with his goodness and his kindness, God leads us along right paths. Or some of your versions will say paths of righteousness. And he does this so that we can experience the freedom that comes with that. And I'm using the word freedom here on purpose because we can hear the words paths of righteousness and we're immediately intimidated by them because they feel impossibly constrictive. And there is this growing misperception that the Bible and Christianity are regressive, meaning God's word has become outdated and outpaced by the knowledge this generation has been able to uncover. And to anyone who believes that, I, I want to say this in the kindest way possible. You don't understand this book. You don't understand this book. This book contains a measure of wisdom that will always exceed our ability to understand it. And there is no other book on the planet, no other book in history that has done more to liberate us than the Bible. In fact, you can prove this to yourselves right here, right now. I want you to do this. Everyone, show of hands, how many of you have ever made a regrettable choice in your life? Okay. For those of you who don't have your hands up, your regrettable choice is lying in church. <laughs> Just to put us all on the same page, okay? But seriously, look back at your lives and think about some of the more regrettable choices that you've made. In fact, let me just take you back there for a second. Everybody close your eyes. Let me put you back at that moment of decision. And I want to ask you this question. Would things have turned out better or worse if you had let this book influence that decision? Now look at me. For me, they would have turned out better every single time. Without question. 
calling this book regressive is really just the world's way of expressing its frustration with something that refuses to condone its rebellion against the shepherd. But if we would allow, go ahead, not my words. If we would allow this book to guide us along right paths, it will set us free. Next verse. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now, how many of you would agree that the state of our culture feels like a pretty dark valley right now? Anybody get on board with that? I feel that way. The picture that David gives here is one that would have come from those moments when he was leading his sheep through places where they were most vulnerable. It's a picture of a valley where every predator could have looked down on them from a higher position. And if they decided to attack, they could just gravity alone would allow them to descend on the sheep much faster than the sheep could ascend to safety. It's not a good position to be in, not a safe position to be in. And yet there was no fear in David. It wasn't because the threats weren't real. It was simply because of who was with him. Just as the sheep were at peace in the company of their shepherd, so David was at peace in the company of his. While he understood that he might not always be able to overcome the enemies he faced, he knew that God was with him. and That was enough for him to have peace. All right, next verse, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, here's where a little bit of context can go a long way. The rod and the staff were basically the shepherd's only tools. The rod is what we might call a club or a bat. It was shorter, heavier on one end, and in the hands of a skilled shepherd, they could use it to fight off predators. The staff was a little different. It was longer. It was about six feet long, had a hook on one end. It looked like a long cane. Most of the time, it would be used to just kind of guide the sheep back into place. But if the sheep were particularly stubborn, as sheep tend to be, as we tend to be, <laughs> the shepherd could take the end with the hook and put it around the sheep's neck and pull their head up. The reason they would do this is because sheep are exceptionally strong when their heads are looking down, but they're not as strong when their heads are looking up. This is because when they're looking down, they can engage their shoulder muscles, some of the strongest muscles in the sheep's body. So the shepherds designed their staves with hooks so they could lift the sheep's head because when the sheep's head was lifted up, they were much easier to lead. This creates an interesting picture for you and me. Because when our heads are down, when we're focused only on the world around us, we all struggle to follow God. But when our heads are lifted and our eyes are forced to look towards God, something changes in us. When we're forced to look up towards the shepherd, we realize pretty quickly that we can trust him. And we're much easier to lead. So if we find that we are resisting God in any area of our lives, then it might be time to ask, what am I focused on? What am I focused on? Is my head down? Am I focused only on what is around me? Am I focused on the world or am I focused on the world maker? Because what we focus on has a way of affecting just how willing we are to be led. All right, next verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now in these final verses, David begins to shift the allegory just a bit. 
He gives us a new picture. It's that of a banquet and a host. And David's main focus here in these last two verses is to set up a framework for hope and peace. The enemies that David would have been talking about would have been other nations that would maybe threaten to come and take the city, overthrow it, and take it as their own. And so for David and the people of Israel, there was always this persisting fear of who was just outside the gate, who was just on the other side. Seems a little disconnected from our experience until you think about it like this. What's just on the other side of that next election? What's just on the other side of that next market crash? What's just on the other side of that next merger in my company? Or the next round of layoffs? Or take it out of the workplace for a second. What's just on the other side of that next fight with my spouse? Or with my friends or my kids or my parents? What's just on the other side of that next birthday? I get a little bit older or my kids become teenagers. That's real. What's just on the other side of that next diagnosis? We all face threats that are just on the other side. And David is reminding us here that despite what is on the other side, we can still have peace on this side because it's what God has prepared for us. But the only way for us to experience that peace is for us to sit down at his table. We must have relationship with him. We must learn to sit with him, to spend time with him, to talk with him, to listen to him. J.I. Packer once said, the pursuit of God is not a part-time weekend exercise. If it is, chances are you will experience a part-time weekend freedom. But when we seek him first, above everything else in our lives, we will discover that our cup truly does overflow. All right, last verse. Surely goodness and love follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, here's where David rips his shirt off and puts an exclamation point on things. But to get a clear understanding of what this final verse is saying, it can help to flip it like this. We will dwell in the house of the Lord because his goodness and love follow us. Makes even more sense when you look at that verb to follow. In Hebrew, it's the word radaf, and it means to pursue or chase. So a very literal translation of this verse might sound something like this. Because the goodness of love, because the goodness of God has pursued me. Because the love of God has chased me down. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know? The goodness of God has been running you down all the days of your life. And because he'll never quit or give up, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what does this psalm have to do with our series, The Word at Work? Well, remember, David wrote this during a time when he was looking back on his work, work that he probably wasn't all that excited about. In Hebrew culture, the youngest son always got the worst duties. That's how David ended up herding the sheep. 
But it was during those lonely and difficult days and nights in the pasture that David learned five things that would change him forever. He learned that God had pursued him. He learned that God had protected him. He learned that God had provided for him. He learned that God had prepared him. And he learned that God had promoted him. For David, all those years, they just felt like herding sheep. They were often challenging, often lonely, almost always unappreciated. But for God, he was using those years to make a king. He was shaping something in David that would enable him and every generation after him to see that God truly is our good shepherd. I mean, just imagine, think about it for a second. How many of us have been comforted by these words that he wrote down after reflecting on his time in the pasture? C.S. Lewis once said that each person is created to see a different part of God's beauty to see something that no one else can see in quite the same way, and then to bless worshipers throughout eternity with an aspect of God they could not otherwise see. Does your work feel like you are trudging around in a pasture? Well, then from David's life, you can take heart. You are not there without purpose. There is something for you to see, something for you to learn, something for you to share. There's also something for you to remember. God is pursuing you. God is protecting you. God is providing for you. God is preparing you. And God is promoting you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you not only use the pasture, you sometimes put us in it. That we might learn some things about ourselves and about you that would be difficult for us to see in any other way. So I pray that we would hold fast to your truth. That we would hold on to your promises. That we will dwell with you forever. That you have not left us. You're doing something greater, even though we might not be able to see it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next few minutes, we want to give you guys a chance to respond. And you can do that just by kind of working through two questions in your head. God, what are you saying to me? And what am I going to do with that? For some of you, you may be realizing that it's time to let God lead you in a specific area of your life. It's time for you to bow might be your work, might be your relationships, might be your finances. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you today, go to one of the crosses, write down that area of your life, and then write down a name, the name of the person you're going to share this with, so they can encourage you, help you, pray for you. Pin it to the cross as your way of saying, this is going to start changing today. For some of you, you're ready to publicly declare your faith and be baptized. To take a step that symbolizes how our sin was buried with Jesus in his death. And now we have been raised to new life through his resurrection. 
you'd like to do that, then just head out into the breezeway after response time begins and someone from our team will help you. And for some of you, life feels overwhelming right now because of what's just on the other side. There's something you're carrying and it's been robbing you of the peace that God has prepared for you at his table. If that's you, then prayer is your next best step. You can come down front, have someone from our team pray for you, or go to one of the candles, light a candle, pray for yourself. But remember this, prayer is always where peace begins because it puts us in the presence of our shepherd. And for all of us, today is an opportunity to commit financially to what God is doing among us. It's not a requirement. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be part of something that God is going to continue to do and change lives here at Seacoast. So I'd encourage all of you to do this. When you came in, you might have been handed one of these cards or the information is going to be on the screen, but you can go to seacoastlegacy.org or text legacy in any amount to 320-320. That'll put you into a queue where you can just follow the steps and commit to how you want to be generous as a way of thanking God for his generosity to you. It's an invitation. I also want to invite you to come and celebrate communion, to give thanks that God allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed in the person of Jesus so that we might be free from sin. And then finally, we're going to respond together by singing and worshiping the God who is truly our good shepherd. Let's respond. <laughs>